Hello, I'm James Holland and this is Chalk Valley History Hit. Now, I don't know about you, but I have to admit I'm a sucker for a good war film. Although, as a historian of the Second World War, it's sometimes hard not to watch a World War II movie and not groan at the clichés or howling historical inaccuracies. Now, I don't want to spoil things for anyone, but it is, I'm afraid, true to say that Saving Private Ryan had a fair few howlers. Although, I have to admit, I still did think it was pretty good. What followed from Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, though, was the ten-part TV series Band of Brothers which I have to say was about as spot-on historically as it's possible to be, as well as being a really fantastic drama. And it's also true that I can't think of a single person in my field who doesn't have Band of Brothers right at the very top of their list of best-ever World War II movies and TV series. I, for one, certainly think it's brilliant. One of the main stars of that show was Damien Lewis, who played the key role of Dick Winters, the real-life commander of Easy Company in the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment. And the series followed them from their training right down through their parachute drop on D-Day through to the very end of the war in Bavaria in May 1945. Of course, Damien has since gone on to become one of the most famous and recognised actors on the planet. So I have to admit, we were very thrilled indeed to be able to welcome him to the Chalk Valley History Festival a couple of years ago. At the time, he was in very good form. He was looking lean and trim and freshly bearded for his role as Henry VIII in Wolf Hall. But despite the busy filming schedule, he'd still taken time not only to visit us, but also had clearly been boning up about the history of that final year of the war in Europe. It was very, very impressive. Not only that, he was charming, affable and bringing a whole load of really interesting insights. And I have to say, his talk about making that iconic series remains a personal highlight of mine during the six years of the History Festival. I really hope you enjoy it as every bit as much as I did. Come on! Thanks so much for uh, coming to see Damien. He's had a hell of a journey here, and he, we, he whisked in about ten minutes ago, so um, let's just let him calm down for five minutes. No, he's all right, but he's a man who's used to pressure, so I'm sure. On, on a slightly personal note, Damien and I were at school together, um, and Damien may not remember the fact we did a drama A-level very briefly. Yes. And uh, did you drop out? Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I got a D. Uh, so, so technically I'm better at acting than you are, but... Yeah, t- uh, <laughs> But I think that actually Grammys, Emmys and OBEs probably speak for themselves more yes. than a, uh, a yeah. drama A level. Well, your understanding of Johnsonian theatre is yeah, probably that was, better than mine. That was but, uh, it wasn't vocational enough yeah. for me. I got handed this on the way and it was amazing. This is a picture of me as a 12-year-old giving my bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream uh, with a collection of 12-year-olds that I was in the cast with. This was the first acting prize I ever got. It's absolutely amazing photograph from Jonathan Hearn if you're here thank you very much yes thank you what we'd like to do is to probably talk for about 30 to 40 minutes talk to Damien about his acting and we'll try and do a bit of history as well it is a history festival so we should try and remember that a bit and then after that we'll do have some questions and then at about five to ten Damien will need to be whisked away and I'm afraid there won't be any opportunities to maul him as much as I suspect some of you will be able to so sorry there's a vocal thing over there so so sorry Damien I'm sure you're (laughs) I think, sorry, the, the Chinook, I think, yeah, takes yeah, 20. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So do, you want, do you want to leave now? Do you want to leave now? I think that's yeah. all they wanted. Right, I'm going to ask you some boring, pompous questions and then we'll have some fun ones. Okay? Yes, so I'll do yes, the boring, yes. pompous history questions. And 
I think that, you know, you've been in at least three or four historical dramas. You've been Colditz, uh, Banner Brothers, you're now, of course, in Wolf Hall. But, I mean, is it something, you know, as an actor that you specifically care about historical accuracy, or is that you're given the script, you get on with that? Do you worry about the kind of backstory to the story you've been given? Um, well, I just think, well, for, um, for credibility, one needs to always worry about a backstory, whether it's a completely fictitious one or a real one. I've been lucky enough to have been in what I would call two social documents. One of them was Warriors, which was about the peacekeeping forces in Bosnia based on the 92-93 peacekeeping forces out there who, of course, for the first time, were experiencing a role as a police force, a global police force, a non-interventionist peacekeeping force who had to stand by and watch uh, daily atrocities happening in front of them. Um, And, of course, this is when I first did a lot of research into post-traumatic stress disorder, which I now know quite a lot about. Um, Band of Brothers, equally, uh, Tom Hanks. I'll never forget him making a trademark sort of Hanksian tub-thumping speech as we went to boot camp at Longmore Camp down in Surrey, Surrey, Hampshire border. I'll never forget him just saying, use these two weeks, you're going to go into a two-weeks basic training it will be as tough as any basic training that the army asks its new recruits to go through, and it was. And he said, you should all just stay in character. Stay in character, remain in character for two weeks, assume your rank, and assume really that this isn't going to be a sensationalist bit of Hollywood shoot 'em up This is going to be a social document, and we want to honour the memory of these men. So... In terms of verisimilitude and, you know, searching a truth and wanting to be truthful to the memories of men who have served, I've been very lucky that two major projects that I've been involved in have been set up that way. Um, cold it. I was going to ask, let's, let, I would ask you because uh, it was something let, let's just quickly talk about uh, Warriors, because it's interesting, even though, I mean, it almost feels like present day still for those of us who are above the age of 40, but that period. But, I mean, it's when you're playing a sort of something quite frequent like that, or you do you sort of feel aware that you have a kind of responsibility to, to keep it true? Because, of course, a younger generation might regard some of these sort of programmes as actually history in themselves, even though they're just an approximation of history. And, I mean, it's something that presumably writers have to take seriously, and, of course, it's probably part of your job description a bit as well. Are there roles that you wouldn't feel comfortable about taking historically or... I, yes, I, I, I think every actor will have a different answer. I think you must take responsibility for the roles you choose. It is a nice get-out clause as an actor, saying, well, I didn't write it, I'm not directing it, and I didn't produce it, and I'm an interpreter, and I'm here to do a job to interpret the material. Uh, that doesn't sit very well with me, unless there's a compelling reason to do it. There are moral reasons not to do things, let's put it that way, and once you come up against that wall, then you need to make a decision. You mentioned Colditz just now, which was a, I think it was 2005, it was a sort of two-parter, wasn't it, on ITV, I think like that. And that was very much a fantasy based on a real place. And I think you played a kind of Glaswegian corporal who was quite lippy. Aye. Uh, uh, it's all coming back, it's all coming back. Yeah. And I remember interviewing a man called uh, Ken Lockwood, who was a Colditz prisoner around the same time because I wrote a book set in Colditz. And I was writing a fiction, so it was kind of the same idea as, not, not the same actual idea as the programme you were in, but I was taking that brand and then running with it as a fiction. So, mm. I mean, he got very angry uh, with me for, you know, daring to write a fiction. And then he had heard about the programme you were in and saying there wasn't drug-taking in Colditz, there wasn't this, there, there weren't even Glaswegian corporals in Colditz. Yes. And, of course, you're sort of aware of the fact that for most of us, you know, the 40s is a long time ago and it's a long time before we were born. 
And yet there are still quite a lot of these people out there who who take great offence at these things. It can be a problem. Did you well, I think there might, be, there, there might be an onus on the filmmakers to write a disclaimer at the front of any project based on real events is yeah. pretty nebulous, one-size-fits-all term, which means basically none of this is true. Um, <laughs> so that, is that, and that's OK. But I think um, I read a lot of Derry Neves' memoirs about his double escape out of um, prison camps, and a lot of it run true. I mean, I think the clue is in the working title for Colditz, which was originally from Colditz with love. So uh, I, uh, if they had kept that as the title, I think it would have been abundantly clear to everyone that they were getting a, a different take on Colditz. There was this rather melodramatic love story crowbarred into this story, uh, not between inmates, I hasten to add, uh, <laughs> Uh, the very uh, delightful and delectable Sophia Miles was playing uh, the girl at the centre of a love triangle with my, between myself and Tom Hardy. So fictionalised to a larger degree, yes, and I think, that's, I think that's OK. As long as the public know what they're getting, you might argue with some big Hollywood biopics. You know, certainly Mel Gibson ran into this problem with Braveheart, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, famously. Um, but I think as long as one is honest and upfront and just says this isn't a documentary, this is a based on the events of, then I think you're OK, and I think you have licence to do what you want. I think it's the same with writing fiction as well. It's the same principle. Yeah. I mean, Band of Brothers, which you... And Hilary on... Mantel, I think, would agree with you. I, well, well, I'm sure she would. I, I, it wouldn't be for me to dispute anything she said. I... I, I um... It's Dame Hilary to you. Dame Hilary. Yeah. Sorry, Damien OBE. I... Uh, <laughs> I, I... That's Dame Ian, Lewis, Dame, yeah, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. The... the... <laughs> It uh, can only be soon. The, I, I, you did mention Band of Brothers, and you were talking about having to go on boot camp for two weeks. Mm. No, I think actually this talk is called Band of Brothers, isn't it? I, anyway, but it is, so we better talk about that. The, uh, I, should, we, I, should we bring it back in? We should bring it back to Thank that. You. I think we should. We went down the lanes we, of we, we, You spoke about the physical preparation for the role and, and getting into character and staying in your rank. Clearly that series was known for being historically accurate, and, I mean, you know, normally these things come out, people like James Holland will look at it and go, oh, this is all wrong, this is all wrong. There was very little of that with Band of Brothers. But were you aware of that during the shooting, during the filming, this had to be right? I mean, were there people there saying, oh, no, it's not like that, it's not like this, and checking, you know, bits and pieces? Were you aware of that as an actor? Yeah, we were. And um, we also remember a large proportion of the men we were representing whose stories we were telling were still alive. I went and stayed with Dick Winters on his farm in Hershey, Pennsylvania, he was older than most of the men. He was already a 25, 26-year-old when they jumped on June 6, 1944. He already had a university degree in agricultural science and economics, I think. And um, when he came out, he developed a recipe, an ingredient for chicken feed, which made him a millionaire. And he had a lovely farm in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And in fact, talking to Dick was fascinating. He was a rather dry man in terms of his recollections of the war, he didn't anecdotalise easily. He wasn't given to late-night sessions, you know, staring at the bottom of a glass of whisky and weeping and, and laughing and recalling his memories of the war. They were very technical, well-remembered, practical memories of operational detail. And being with him on his farm, it was clear to me that this guy was... I was playing the hero... He was essentially the leader of these men. He was someone that these men revered. They looked up to him. His catchphrase, follow me, 
was never challenged. It was, according to the men, it was a cry of great comfort to them. They would follow him. They felt that he was a man who would get the job done and they'd stand a really good chance of getting out alive if he was running whatever mission it was. And this is where the... To come back to our original point you were making, how much do you stick to a social document, keep it absolutely real? And how much do you bend the truth a little bit for dramatic purposes? He seemed to me, from the moment he jumped on June the 6th and all through his training at Tokoa, later on at Fort Benning, and when he came to Aldbourne here in the British countryside, he seemed like the complete soldier. He had the gift of leadership. And I wanted to convey, uh, over the course of 10 hours, a man who grew into his role, a man who, who jumped with trepidation, with a nervousness, with a, a sense of unknowing of what was to come. And I think initially he was uncertain of the portrayal because I think he remembered himself too as being the complete soldier. Um, Dick was, was both humble and very confident in his own ability at the same time. But in order to create character arcs, to see personalities develop through their year of the Second World War was an important factor and I think an important component of the drama and why it worked. But I think Dick in particular, was a man who, who really was the complete soldier from the get-go. Did you, did you maintain a relationship with Dick after the filming had finished? I mean, when did he die? It wasn't that long ago. He died just a couple of years ago in January. Yeah. And I was, wasn't able to go to his funeral, sadly. But, um, so you, there was a relationship still there? I mean, there was a relationship kind of... through correspondence. I hadn't yeah. seen him much. Um, you know, all these uh, Band of Brothers veterans were made superstars by Band of Brothers being transmitted and released to the world. Their stories were well known by a small group of people and suddenly they were known globally and the extraordinary feats that they had accomplished were recorded for all to see. And a lot of them spent the last 10 years of their lives, because a lot have died in the last two or three years, going from reunion to reunion, from one festival to the next, being flown in and out of places as sort of dignitaries, ambassadors and storytellers. Now, are there other American units who sort of rankle at this a bit, do you think? I mean, have you heard anything saying, well, it's very lucky for them because they've got all this sort of Hollywood treatment, as it were, but there are, of course, you know, you know, well, I think a few other people. Not all of them. You know, coming back to Dick, I think Dick always felt a bit uncomfortable with it. There's a leadership statue in Normandy, which I visited just uh, a few weeks ago on June the 6th for the 70th anniversary. And it's a leadership statue in his image. He was very, very clear that he didn't want a Dick Winters memorial. He was democratic that way. He always reminded me of... I always drew on Henry V, actually. Um, it was a sort of... A, a man who is able to walk with kings and talk with the common man. But there is nevertheless a statue there in Normandy just outside Saint-Marie-du-Mont, which is clearly him. Um, it's not you. Uh, no, <laughs> it's not me. Uh, it's not me. Uh, no one would want that. And uh, so even for people in easy company, and I really am referring specifically to Dick, uh, felt had an uncomfortable relationship with the way in which they were brought into the public eye. For that reason. I mean, of course, the book by Ambrose had already been a huge seller anyway. Presumably you read that. And had you immersed yourself in any other memoirs, you know, not only from that company or any other kind of D-Day literature at the time? I mean, how much did you feel the need to actually sort of burrow into this stuff? I had Dick's own diaries, which were extensive. But again, historians often say, don't they, you know, the, the question that they're most asked is, yes, but what did they feel? What yeah. did they feel at the time? What did they feel? And even though Dick was alive, getting out of him what he felt 
was very hard. And it's what made him a great leader, I think. He was able to make quick decisions, the correct decision 99% of the time uh, under extreme duress and, and able to lead a, a small group of men against a company of 50 German soldiers, for example, is well documented in that first action of easy companies on the very first day um, after they've jumped into Normandy when they take the four 105 guns which are shelling uh, Utah Beach, which had been missed by our intelligence because they were so well entrenched in a very well-constructed trench system by the Germans. Actually, some of that generation, actually, when you read their memoirs, and because that generation, probably unlike ours or younger generations, aren't necessarily that good at explaining or exploring their feelings. They can be much more impenetrable when you read, maybe read their well, diaries. Well, that's right, sorry, less, that's right. Yeah. That's, and, and in spite of the fact that I had a lot of this uh, diary um, material of Dick's, it was, again, it was very operational, very methodical, practical recollections, or, or written at the time, of what was needed for that day. You know, as Dick famously said, and I think this was something that Easy Company felt to a man, and the, the entire 506 felt, actually, was that, you know, rather than join the army and, and just sort of wander your way idly through it and get three square meals and a roof over your head, you might as well commit and be the best soldier that you can be. For a lot of them, that's why they joined the paratroopers. They felt that it was an elite group. Yes, there was the extra $50 a month jump pay that you got over an infantry soldier. But for most of them, it was the pride of having their corker and jump boots, being able to blouse your trousers, um, which was seen as a status symbol, meaning simply most of you will know this, but you can just bring up your trousers, blouse them, and they tuck into your jump boots, which come up to here. These were status symbols, and they, they meant a lot to these men. A lot of these young boys, of course, were punks. 19, 18-year-old, badly educated young men from the margins, way below the poverty line, a lot of them. They'd never been in an aeroplane before, um, actually the majority of them, and the first time they ever got in an aeroplane, they jumped out of it. Um, <laughs> so, and there are a lot of lovely stories, actually, of men after the war with their children, with their grandchildren, the first time they go on vacations with children or whatever. It's the first time they ever landed in a plane. <laughs> and, 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 and they've said they've never been so shit scared in all their lives <laughs> than actually touching the ground in an aeroplane. It was much more comfortable jumping from 2,000 feet. Of course, of course, and this is an important point. You might be going on to ask this anyway, but, you know, just while we are here with Band of Brothers, what they achieved on D-Day in the chaos of war should never be underestimated for all the Allied planning. Of course, remember, just not far from here, near Upottery, down here in Devon and Slapton Sands, 900 Allied men were lost as they uh, just did a practice run of the D-Day landings because they didn't notice two U-boats slunk up the channel and just picked us off. And that was only made public 40 years after the event. Dick Winters himself, a man of great discipline and restraint, found himself in a wrestling match to release the tension days before, on June the 4th, two days before they jumped, only to break his opponent's vertebrae in a wrestling slam, this man, after a year of training, was sent back to America two days before the jump. The jump itself, it was delayed uh, a few hours because the fog came in over the English Channel, but we did finally go on June the 6th. These pilots, of course, a lot of them flying for the first time into enemy flak, hit this bank of cloud, panicked, sped up, 
was supposed to be going much, much slower, all sped up, of course, cranked the engines, started going at 150 miles an hour, which was about 50 miles an hour quicker than they were supposed to be going in these big C-47 bombers. Because they didn't want to crash into each other and they could no longer see each other, the left and the right uh, wings of the C-47s split. So by the time they came back out of these banks, which they never fully did, they were spread over an area much greater than they were supposed to be. So their drop zones were no longer relevant. So not only were they spread, missing their drop zones, they were going too fast. The pilots were absolutely panicking, being shot at by German ACAC. They wanted to get out of there. And no one wants to diminish the role of anybody in a moment like that. But the paratroopers are all quite clear that the pilots just wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible and put on the red light, which was the cue to stand up, hook up, move to the door and jump. So a lot of these boys were jumping out, planes travelling too quickly, planes were too low, jumping at 500 feet, some of them. Lieutenant Welsh, excuse me, Lieutenant Welsh, one of Dick Winters' great, great friends, jumped at 230 feet with over 80 pounds worth of kit. Some of them were carrying up to 150 pounds worth of additional weight in their leg bags, His life, he's convinced, was only saved because a plane below him got hit, blew up. The blast from the plane blew him back across the sky. He says probably about another 50 or 60 feet back into the air. There's no question it saved his life by buying him that extra 60 or 70 feet. These leg bags, I'm sure you're all brilliant historians, but I'm going to tell you anyway. These leg bags, of course, were a British idea, um, which... On paper, it was a great idea. You could put all your kit, any extra material, rations, your guns, your bivvy, all those sort of things could go into these leg bags. The idea this would have a catch, this leg bag, it would release as you jumped out. And a rope would extend to 20 feet. And this 80 pounds worth, because obviously you don't want to hit the ground with an additional 100, 110 pounds, in some cases 150 pounds, because you'd just be strawberry jam. So the idea was that you, it would release to 20 feet, land 20 feet ahead of you, and then you would just come in behind it. But because they were travelling too fast, a lot of these pilots at the time of the drop, as soon as they came out of the door, the propeller blast just ripped their leg bags off all their legs immediately. Dick Winters was one of these men, lost his M1 rifle, and was not alone. Hundreds of them landed in a foreign field miles away from their leg bag, miles away from their drop zone, in the dark, with nothing. Just nothing. Standing there naked, with their boots on. Dick was always insisted on carrying a a, a boot knife, which he always carried in his left boot here. Never was without it. So he picked out his knife. And that was how the Allied invasion, the liberation of Europe, started. These guys spent the first few hours just trying to find each other. It was that chaotic. It's a miracle that they came together as quickly as they did and we affected this extraordinary invasion. And that's to say nothing of the several hundred soldiers who crawled up, 
tooled up their parachutes, curled up in a bush, and went to sleep for three hours because of the Dramamine, the sickness pills that they were given by General Taylor, which they never used in their practice jumps. But he had thought everyone would be so jumped up, the adrenaline would be running so high that in order to stop them just going crazy, he'd give them these air sickness pills. And no one had measured the quantity. And there are... And there are, there are stories of soldiers who woke up three years later, wonder, three years later. <laughs> so see, a whole village had been developed. <laughs> Looking at their map, going, well, I can't see this anywhere. Um, three hours later, and seeing the field littered with their comrades, with their fellow soldiers, and f- still to this day feeling great guilt that, you know, they'd missed th- those initial points of contact with the enemy. And of course, this is just the beginning of the story, the land. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you're filming these things, you're in your kit, you're in maybe a, a mock-up of a plane in the studio, I'm not sure, but there must be moments when you're filming and you're in character and everybody's in their war paint and their uniforms, and you're thinking, actually, you're probably a bit nervous, but people were doing this for real. Was there kind of any sort of moments which it suddenly hits you? People actually did this for real. They must have been absolutely terrified. Or Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, well, yes, um, if it's not clear... I did not win the Second World War. No. Uh, no, uh, of course, if you play a character or are lucky enough to be in a well-produced um, bit of drama, Band of Brothers, I think, was just an exceptional piece of drama and I was very fortunate to be in it. You are, you are often mistaken. People blur, blur boundaries and come up to you and just say, thank you for everything you've done. <laughs> and... Uh, I said, well, I know, I know. I had to get out of my Winnebago every morning, eight o'clock. No, it was um, very humbling, very humbling is the short answer, to meet these men, to hear what they did. To a man, of course, they will say, we weren't heroes, we were just doing what anyone else would have done. Of course, the glue for any army anywhere is the three-man relationship. You, and the man on your left, and the man on your right. And that's who they fight for. Really sort of asked to, to be, give an honest response. Most soldiers won't say God and country. They will say the guy on my left and the guy on my right. And those relationships are absolutely what, what binds a military force. So these relationships are what drive an army forward and speaking to them all very humbling. There's a philosopher called Gray who writes about the ecstasy of comradeship. He wrote a very well-known book called The Warriors, if some of you might have read it. At its zenith, there is a sort of ecstasy in war, an ecstasy of, well, of these relationships between the person on the left and right. Um, I'm not going to suggest that we achieve something as profound, shooting it, but certainly being put through a two-week basic training and investing as much time, as much intellectual and emotional energy as I think we all did because we realised we were involved in something important, that it did have an opportunity to be a social document, not just another piece of drama. We all became very close and we, us actors have in some small sense become a band of brothers. We have a reunion every year and we're all very close. Was it screened in the UK and the States simultaneously and States first? It was screened... uh, It might have been a week ahead there. Because it was... September the 11th happened 
after two or three episodes. Yeah. And then HBO, I think, withdrew all their uh, promotion for the series at yeah. the time as a, as a direct result of that because America really was felt to be at war again. Were you aware of that by that stage? I mean, were, yeah, we were. We, we'd had an open-air premiere at the Hollywood Bowl with... Cayman's beautiful score being played live by an orchestra and they played the first two hours and uh, there was much fanfare surrounding it and then 9-11 happened and I think we'd had two episodes only by then it might even have only been one episode but certainly I think with the devastation in New York and the the reality of that it was deemed not really appropriate to keep promoting, albeit a non-fiction yeah. piece of drama on the TV. And people's appetite uh, understandably waned uh, for violence yes. uh, because Band of Brothers is true to life. It is violent and it's graphic at times. And Band of Brothers, I suppose, as a, as a thing, had to, had to sort of reinvent itself and had to start again. And it did, really, just through syndication, to use a very American... Uh, entertainment term um, but it gets syndicated through other networks and it just had an ongoing life and had these reruns on the history channel which went these sort of weekend marathons they seemed yes, to absolutely. play every month there was a marathon of band of brothers so you could sit and watch 10 hours of the second world war if you wanted to over a saturday and a sunday but very quickly i think what happened is it got taken up by the armed forces and because uh, very quickly we were in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and then two years later we were in Iraq, I then found myself being approached by soldiers all over the war. I remember shooting a film in Greece. I was in Crete in 2004, and Suda, the American naval base there, is very close by. And there were a whole load of American troops and Navy boys walking around Crete, coming up to me. And it became very clear that Banner Brothers had become, A, a motivational tool, a morale tool, a piece of propaganda, and that every single member of the armed forces, British and American, were watching it wherever they were in the world. And it still goes on. That action that Dick Winters undergoes on the very first morning of D-Day, when he takes out the 4105s, taking, using a small group of men against 50 Germans, a much larger uh, enemy force, is used at Sandhurst, is used at West Point. I've got a nephew at the moment at Sandhurst who says it's, um, it's quite annoying. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's the lesson they all look forward to when they have to, just have to sit and watch Band of Brothers for an hour. Yeah, yeah but uh, they are watching it. So I feel very proud and humbled by the life that it has continued to have. Now, we're talking about your sort of slight confliction between your role as an actor and playing soldiers, and you're also bringing in present-day soldiers and present-day war. So that's obviously going to raise the uh, subject of Homeland. Have you had that sort of, you know, people come up to you as... Dick Winters, but two people come up to you and look at you in a slightly different light, and <laughs> but by the same way. And have you? How's that? How do you manage that? I put on a baseball cap and a pair of sunglasses. Like <laughs> everyone else, brilliant disguise. Uh, it's um, well, I look. They're two very different. They're two very different characters, and um, there was a certain reluctance in me actually shortly after Band of Brothers uh, to keep representing Dick Winters, um, uh, although. I consider myself first and foremost uh, an interpreter. That, that's, I think, the best way to, to approach acting and to be a storyteller. You, of course, must assume responsibility for what you do. I uh, was very happy to have told an American tale, um, but always have been aware that I'm British 
and that there are British stories out there to be told too. In some ways, I was I was reluctant to be uh, the standard bearer and to continue to be by proxy Dick Winters. Right, yeah, you yeah. know, whether I was in Kentish Town or you know where on beach in Cornwall, and I think I stepped back from it a bit. You know, uh, and I always was worried about the disappointment that would sort of fade across people's faces as they realised that they could also see me in tights playing Shakespeare. You know, at the Royal Shakespeare Company, because people want you to be that. Yes, so Homeland, you know, Nick Brodie is a very different person. Winters was a brilliant, consummate, successful soldier who let his actions do the talking, really. Uh, Nicholas Brodie is a casualty of war and is a, is a strong political symbol of what happens when you send young men into war and fail to provide for them when they come back. Of course, Homeland, you know, extrapolates. So you get to a point where, you know, he's taken a prisoner of war and he's abused and tortured, but um, isn't Bo Bergdahl uh, an extraordinary uh, fact, given that Homeland's been on TV for the last three years? So it it can happen and it does happen. But... um, In terms of people's response to me, I find people still very loyal to Band of Brothers. It's continued to have a life long beyond its transmission date. It's quite extraordinary, the life it's had. And Homeland was a was an immediate global phenomenon that I took everyone by surprise and has been quite at times aggressive in terms of the glare and the attention that it's brought. Now, we've got 21 minutes and 30 seconds left, according yeah. to that. And um, I'm going to ask you a bit about Wolf Hall, and then I'm going to see if anyone wants to ask you any questions. How's Wolf Hall going? What's it like playing Henry VIII? I mean, and this is why the beard is here, presumably. It's the beard, yes, which I had to hurry. Uh, had, for, the, for the first week or so, had to be coloured in, because I hadn't quite grown enough hair in a short space of time to my last job and this job. Um, Henry, it's absolutely fantastic playing... A genocidal maniac. (laughs) I I think what Hilary Mantel's Henry is a complex, tender, brilliant, athletic, poetic dreamer. And it's been fun playing her version of him uh, whilst being able to cherry-pick, you know... She, she nevertheless, at Wolf Hall and, and Bring Up the Bodies, uh, she borrows uh, rigorously from, you know, from Tudor scholarships. So anything that she refers to is, is factually true. There is a theory that says pre-1536, he was an affable, likeable, sporty, uh, as I say, creative very talented intellectual individual he then had this accident jousting actually before he even got to the tilt yard his horse inexplicably rolled on him um injured his leg and he was no longer able to hunt which he loved to do in fact he loved to go hunting so much that Wolsey and then latterly Cromwell effectively ran the kingdom for him it's been fun playing the pre-1536 Henry a more svelte 34 inch waisted uh king (laughs) And after 1536, in the last 10 years of his life, he's ballooned, sort of rather like Elvis. He was, uh, 
just sat. He sometimes ate 13 courses for a meal and he was unable to hunt at that point and he just ballooned to a 56-inch waist. He became, of course, increasingly grandiose, increasingly paranoid, self-pitying, sort of maniacal. And more people got killed in the last 10 years of his life. Uh, Obviously, we then have the dissolution of the monasteries, which Cromwell helped him uh, enact. But what's been great is just having these two Henrys and playing this younger Henry that people mostly don't seem to be aware of. Erasmus said of Henry that he seemed more of a companion than a king. He was very approachable. He suffered, I think, that Prince Hal type sort of um, conundrum, which I think he just craved normality. And I think it was partly that which made him surround himself as he got older with younger men, a sort of Bullingdon club of younger men, youthful, vibrant, virile. And that made him feel younger as, you know, the sportsman started to wane. And this normality that he craved is really what got him himself in so much trouble with the ladies because he um, craved and sought a romantic love. That's how his court was built. His court was set up uh, along sort of medieval chivalric lines. The court should be the most splendid the, the most opulent court that there had ever been. And men should excel in chivalry and the noble pursuits of archery, hunting, hawking, poetry writing, um, composing, reading humanist texts. But with his ladies, he just wanted to be Henry. They fell in love with a girl, wrote her a sonnet or two, and he wanted them to love him back. That was fairly normal, that part of his courtship. And the chopping off of, of their heads was, was less normal. But, um, but driven, driven almost entirely by this obsessive need for a male heir. And that really is Henry's undoing and what creates this paranoia in him. I'm not going to ask any more questions because we've got ten minutes in which to squeeze in as many questions as we can. We have um, the normal rules here, Damien, is that uh, someone has to have a microphone before they can speak to you. Right. Um, this gentleman was very quick here in the black, and then there's a lady just down there in the green trousers. And if you could stand up when you ask the question, that would be great as well. Uh, hello, hello, sir. Hello, how are you? Oh, uh, good, good, thanks. Uh, very pleased. You're not a lady in green trousers. Uh, that's... Uh, <laughs> I was just going to ask, with Band of Brothers, uh, so how did you join the project? How do you get cast? We sort of personally sort of uh, picked by Tom Hanks. And when you sort of talked about your spending time with the real Richard Winters, did he sort of give you any sort of little tips? Did you sort of pick up any of his mannerisms? Like, because I know Tom Cruise did that a bit when he was playing Ron Kovic in Born on the Fourth of July. Yeah, so uh, you all heard the question. Uh, it was needle in a haystack casting. They didn't know me from Adam. I went into one damp Soho basement after another uh, and read scenes from a script that was incomplete. Uh, they didn't tell us who was going up for which part. It became clear after... Pippa was, was guiding me through this at the time. It became clear that they wanted me to, to then start reading for this guy, Dick Winters. I didn't really know who Dick Winters was at the time. Whispers came through to me that he was the leader of Easy Company and he would really be the sort of the, the, the backbone of the piece, the sort of narrator for the, for the most part of it. And I had my 
lovely Hollywood moment where I, after about four months of doing this repeatedly, this uh, very short Prada-wearing American producer called Tony Toe, who is uh, I adore, just said, so, Damien, how do you like to fly to L.A. Tuesday and meet Stephen and Tom? And I... uh, (laughs) And I and I thought it was such a just a great LA moment. And he said, and he went, call the airport now to the security. And said, do you have your passport? I said, no, I'm just come to an audition. And um, and then, but sure enough, next week I was in a very fancy hotel in Santa Monica, and I was meeting Stephen and Tom. And I'd already been cast. Actually, I I later knew. Lady in green trousers now. Well, Lady in green, green trousers. trousers yeah. Um, Military chic, we're going to call that. Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, My son has just finished his first drama school, Living the Paradise. Yeah. Um, And gutted that he can't be here to ask you personally, so it's like on his behalf, really. What advice would you give um, a young actor starting out and top tips for when he leaves of getting a job? Next year, I'm coming back to talk about just that. No. Um, uh, Quickly, uh, what advice? I would say, um, goodness, it is a large stroke of luck, I'm afraid to tell you. Um, But I think if you continue to seek out good people to work with, and keep the bar raised high, whilst others around you might have immediate, sexy, sensational success by being in some big movie, that's not something really to strive for because that's, that's not normal. And you can't plan or legislate for that. Homeland, for example, is a freak. Band of Brothers, in some respects, is a freak. They, there are very few of those programmes that get made that become the phenomenons they become. So all you can do is put yourself in the right areas. It's a bit like being a striker in football. Get yourself in the box and you'll have more chance of scoring a goal. The reason I got Homeland 10 years after I'd done Band of Brothers, as I like to think, is because I continued to work with good people. So when they were looking for good actors with, with credibility, I was on their list. And then after that, I was just lucky. So there's a lady in green over there on the left, and then there's a gentleman down here on the right. Um, I've just recently watched Band of Brothers for the mm. first time because I, I grew up with my parents watching war films and I really hated them, but... Uh, <laughs> I thought I probably should uh, watch Band of Brothers before I came and heard you talk about it. What's really struck me when I've been watching it is it's incredibly traumatic to watch to the point where it's it's had me in tears several times. It must have been traumatic for people involved in making it and I wondered how you dealt with that sort of level of, you know, just being surrounded by that sheer horror of what what went on. Um... uh... It's very involving, and um, even though one is pretending, one is reenacting, there'll be people here who are part of reenactment groups. You know how involved you can become. The cardinal rule about acting is that it's not lying, it's creating an alternative reality, and that reality must be as real as our reality that we just live every day that way it becomes credible and you can 
convince people, persuade people of your argument. Acting is advocacy as much as anything else. So given the fact that you have to involve yourself intellectually and, and emotionally that way, it wasn't always easy to shake it. And I found with different roles, Homeland, uh, playing Hamlet, and, and other roles, a film I did called Keen, where I played someone who suffered from mental illness, you, you do tend to live them. And Band of Brothers lasted eight months, so it was quite a long time. Also, it was quite isolating from my point of view, because Winters, Winters was the commanding officer, and although he was liked and he was approachable and he was personable and spent time with his men, they nevertheless formed a, a caucus, a, a, a group of men that fed a friendship very quickly, and I found myself quite isolated a lot of the time, mostly because I was in more than most of them, and I was always driving off through the countryside to do another scene somewhere. So I did find it quite isolating. In terms of how you deal with it, a couple of beers is quite helpful at the, <laughs> at, the, at the end of a hard day shooting, but one does live in this dream world as an actor. And uh, my friends will tell you, one of my best friends sitting on the front row, sometimes it can seem like you've only, only got half their attention. But certainly when you're... <laughs> when you're working, because there is always part of you which is still in this other reality, which you're, you know, I'm still slightly in Tudor England, even though I'm in a tent here in a field. Um, Damon, I think we've got time for one more question. This gentleman down here, I think, had his hand up. Yeah, Hi, good morning. Hello. Um, my question's about uh, the making of Band of Brothers. I wonder if you could comment about an American story about Americans with such a large number of British actors being shot in Britain. Is What lies behind that huge acting success, and yet you would think that an American production would be out in Hollywood trying to recreate Bastogne in a backlog mm. somewhere. I've got a member of the Cabinet uh, here at the moment. Uh, he'll be able to uh, help with that answer. Hello, sir. How are you? Um, tax breaks. I can't give you a more romantic answer than that. Uh, inward investment, as Mrs. T uh, would have called it, but effectively it is a very good way of bringing these fantastic productions to England. And uh, there is a, a remit, which is that uh, a proportion of the budget must be sent on British services and talent. So we were effectively hired as local hire um, You'll be happy to know I, I got a good American deal personally, but, uh, but not that good because Mr. Steven Spielberg is a shrewd operator. But that's really why, and it's why we continue to get these fantastic big American studio projects here because we do have these wonderful studios, these facilities. Of course, we didn't use one of these famous studios like Pinewood or Shepparton that we had. We created a studio in a landfill site, a thousand-acre landfill site just outside Hatfield, which is an old aerodrome, 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 where we used to build aircraft. BOAC owned it, and we converted two massive hangars into sound stages. But it was amazing what they did with this site, creating dikes in Holland, creating the River Rhine by excavating earth, moving a quarter of a, a million tonnes of earth to create a dike, stick a windmill on the top, and that was Holland. 
creating the town that had a swivel system right down the middle so you could alter the geography of the town and the road pattern of the town so it could be French, Dutch or Belgian, given at different times. Take tabac off one, put something on, you know. Uh, that, that's, that's how we all got involved. Very lucky. I think um, our chairman has um, something to say now. Yeah, I have. Um, my, my question to you, Damien, is... Uh, it sounds like we can't compete financially in this country with something quite as big as that, but maybe we can. The question that gets asked me a lot is, is could there ever be a British Band of Brothers? Could there ever be another great British war film? Uh, and if the answer is yes, would you ever consider being in it? <laughs> the answer's yes and yes. I consider being in anything. Um, LAUGHTER uh, Tell him to read everything. You never know what you might find. But um, look, at the time it was made, it was a $120 million project. It was the most expensive TV show that had ever been made. They have a system in Hollywood where they use writing rooms. There are six writers, all on their own. And they then produce pilots, as you all know. A pilot can cost up to $10 million. At that point, they still haven't committed to whether this thing will go to a series or not. So this is really all in the development budget. But as part of their development budget, they're prepared to actually make an episode of TV. Now, no, we don't have that money. We are starting to use writing rooms a little bit here. The BBC have experimented with them. Another very good friend of mine has been in one, actually, with Frank Spotnitz, who was the man responsible for X-Files. Can there be another great British war movie? Yes, of course there can be. And what defines British? A large chunk of the money might be from China. Um, some might be from Russia. Some of it might be from the US. If you have a British director and it's filmed here in a British studio using British services, then it's a British film. But yes... Yes. I'm afraid that's going to be the last question. Damien, thank you so much for committing to us here today. Thank you. I know that everyone greatly appreciates it. Thank you. Really good.